Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is... Heini Beretta, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Tim, Paul. Great to be here. So by way of introduction, would you like to, to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, uh, I'm Australian-born, uh, grew up in the 70s and 80s uh, in that part of the world and then moved to London in 1998, where I joined uh, Chase Manhattan Bank. I had graduated with an engineering degree, but uh, I found the numbers became alive when you take away kilonewton meters and put dollar signs in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I joined the exotic equity derivatives team in, uh, in Chase, and then that merged into JP Morgan, uh, and that's where I got involved with equity finance and hedge funds. Uh, eventually, I joined the structured credit desk at uh, Calion, and this was where they developed weapons of financial mass destruction, the CDOs of mezzanine ABS. Uh, and then a job came up at GAM because uh, I wanted to get involved with the uh, fund of funds. And so I joined the team there as an analyst uh, in the arbitrage team. And I traveled, uh, uh, met a lot of hedge fund managers all over the world. Uh, and that was that was fantastic exposure to all, all different markets, uh, volatility trading, macro, um, Statab and CTAs. And uh, uh, in the 08 crisis, so I was right in the middle of uh, the subprime malarkey. Uh, and um, uh, that was just an amazing time where, you know, over leverage uh, uh, was exposed. And um, central banks do what they do always and, and papered over the cracks with uh, newly printed money. Did you see that coming? Yes. 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 Yeah. Uh, and uh, soon after that, uh, uh, that's when I first met Tim. Uh, we, we were talking about uh, systematic trading managers uh, at the time. And uh, then I moved to Switzerland in 2014. Happily enough, uh, this, this uh, was good timing to move here. But I spent 16 years in, in London, and so it's very close to my heart. So here's a, a loaded question. When when did you first twig that basically everything was rotten? In, in financial market terms, everything was rotten in the state of Denmark. Yeah. Um, well, all the big players uh, are, are motivated by growing their assets rather than looking after their customers. Uh, and um, the, the, the amount of debt that's been uh, grown since really 1982 is, is just massive. And... Um, Every crisis is papered over by uh, lowering rates uh, and stimulus now. It wasn't initially, but it just gets uh, bigger and bigger. Uh, and um, yeah, CDOs were basically turning lead into gold because uh, they, they uh, were trading correlation risk. Uh, and of course, in crises, correlation goes to one and you don't get any diversification benefit. And I think the way we are now, uh, financial markets and investing is very controlled and very centralized. Uh, and uh, you can expect uh, one thing moving and others in concert. So some might say it was actually worse than lead, because um, lead, ha I suppose, has some value, but I love that expression. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Could I just ask what first got you interested in the financial markets because we've got a great history there but i'm just curious yeah. as to what sparked your 
your your love of finance. Yes, uh, really the the ability to earn money while you sleep. Uh, <laughs> most jobs are involved uh, return directly on effort, and obviously finance uh, is one of those areas which can provide scale. Right. Okay. And, and so uh, the challenge of the financial markets. You've worked in some some quite complicated areas. Um, yes. You know. So w- w- was any of the math side of it uh, appealing to you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the engineering was was a good background in maths, uh, and when I joined Chase, uh, it was it was a fascinating time before the the dot com peak. Uh, a lot of mathematicians on the desk, and you know, people in exotics were were typically quiet, uh, and would tell the cash equity guys to be you know shush. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the maths is is great, and uh, it's something I can carry through to what I'm doing now, which is helpful. So what what are you doing? What's what's your job now? What's your role? Yeah, so, so now I'm 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 returning to banking, uh, having been in asset management and different things, like, uh, a, like a dog returning to it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but uh, uh, this time I'm uh, banking in gold. Uh, and uh, that's a banking. The art of banking is to intermediate between borrower and lender. Uh, and so, in in a simplistic way, if, if you want to uh, lend money, then why not lend it to a money printer? Uh, then you need to be sure that the printer has plenty of paper and ink, access to electricity, that its uh, mechanism is efficient, and that it's staffed and run by well well uh, qualified people. So essentially, what I'm doing is lending gold and silver to gold and silver producers, and you do that via a mechanism which has been around for quite a while: uh, prepaid forward purchase agreements, where uh, investors are able to buy gold and silver at a discount uh, and get a yield on their gold. And so, as a banker, you sit in between. You don't take gold and silver price risk; you do take a spread. Uh, and you're then able to offer uh, gold, people who want gold denominated exposure, a yield on that gold. Whereas the miners, and, and Tim will know this, the miners want to offset some of their gold and silver price risk. So if they're borrowing in what they produce, they have less need to hedge forward uh, and they, they have a more normalized earnings stream, much less volatile. Are there any similarities in terms of what you're describing and what the silver, gold and silver royalty and streaming companies do? Yes, there are similarities. Uh, and I should give credit to Keith Wiener in the US. He, he founded a firm, Monetary Metals, a few years back. So he started this, but I'm bringing it to Europe. So uh, royalties um, may be suitable for when a mine does a machine gun drill a resource to prove as much as they can of that Mm. Uh, and then they need to raise finance to uh, bring it into production so then they'd go to a streamer Uh, the problem with them is that they're they're giving away upside on their entire land package for an ever ever and ever so it's it's highly equity dilutive uh, and as you know, uh, gold miners, they've been in a bear market for 10 years, and they've actually been deleveraging also. Uh, they can only raise money now by issuing more equity, uh, to which uh, private placement want them to issue warrants as well. So it's extremely equidilutive, or, or they go to a streamer. So by lending them gold, you're actually doing something which is not equity dilutive and beneficial because it, it, it reduces their earnings volatility. So it's a win-win. 
There's a chart that we may have mentioned before on some of the recent um, podcasts. It's a chart of um, go, the gold price versus the S&P 500. Yes. And I'll see if I can find it and maybe we can put it in the show notes. But either way, as you say, the gold relative to the S&P 500 has been in a bear market for, as you say, something like a decade or so. The reality, though, is as we're increasingly believing ourselves, obviously, we, we are gold investors, um, the, 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 the gold price looks to be for the third time trying to break out of that, that downtrend. And it looks like this time it's actually, it's actually going to work. It may indeed have already sort of confirmed that sort of breach of resistance. So effectively two things happening. Firstly, that the gold price is now on a bit of a tear as is silver. And secondly, that the, the tide seems to be going out for the S and P 500 and for let's call it sort of mega cap growthy type stuff. Would you agree with that? Yes, uh, but uh, I, I do think uh, we have to be cognizant that that in this regime shift, it's going to be more volatile. And I expect a very hawkish Fed next next month. Uh, I think uh, the markets have sort of shown their hand to want to go higher. And we've seen a uh, breadth breaking out. Um, uh, the Fed needs to wants to slow it down so they're going to be very hawkish and and so we could see a reversal i mean i'm not as as smart as david murren so i can't pick tops and bottoms but what I, I i would suggest is that it is going to be more volatile uh in an upwards trend and and one of my favorite charts is actually uh, gold in weimar marks where mm. you know you can see the the trajectory but Intermittent is is some horrible uh, down months uh, and quarters. So uh, that's why I think gold bonds make a bit of sense because you, you can stomach volatility when you when you're generating a good yield. Uh, back mm. to the old bond math. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's great to have a, a yield on a hard hard asset. Do you think we've seen peak uh, respect or peak credibility for central banks? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I, I think, you know, this, in, given their scenario, they're doing a good job uh, scaring, trying to scare the markets and trying to control things. But uh, now inflation has reared its head, and I don't believe, like the market, that it's going away anytime soon. Uh, maybe you should discuss the four factors of inflation, because most people only know the first two. Well, pl- please do. Yeah, obviously, the the first two is the supply of money and its velocity. Uh, But there's also the the capital markets and their ability to absorb new money. Uh, The best recent example is is where all the stimmy checks went uh, during the COVID time. Uh, That was largely absorbed into the crypto market. Mm. Um, but then the fourth factor is very instructive now. It's the supply of goods and services, and that's been severely impaired, uh, particularly in natural resource space uh, by the green agenda. And so we don't, we can't lean on uh, new supplies of commodities like we used to. And so this is this means inflation is is not going away, uh, even though the Fed is slamming the anchor to to try and bring it down. Can anything basically keep the central bank show on the road? Because from my perspective, I think we're we're rapidly running into the sand. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think uh, these regimes happen once every hundred years. Um, uh, And I love to quote perhaps the the greatest investor alive, Stan Druckenmiller, 
uh, he's made it very clear, uh, if I will. He says, uh, when I look back at the bull market we've had in financial assets, really starting in 1982, all the factors that created the boom not only have stopped, they've reversed. We are in deep trouble. Mm. When did he When did he say that? That was a recent uh, um, webcast he did. Oh, it was it was with uh, uh, Big Bank, I think. Ah, oh. you, you'll find it on YouTube. Yeah, excellent. Yes, so I think I think that this is where sort of the, the charts really do tell a story. That the there's there's one that again sort of our clients want because we've been using it for hundreds of years, and it's a sort of long term chart of interest rates going back actually five thousand years. Whether you take that very long sweep or whether you just take the more recent one, which is I think Druckenmiller is exactly referring to it in in the quote that you just made, um, the the interest rate cycle that we're all now sort of living through began benignly, but with rates reducing in the early 80s, in 81 or 82. And that process has come to an end now. So interest yep. rates have bottomed at basically zero or in some cases below it. And now they're heading back up again. Yep. And so the, the argument we'd make, which is not exactly a, a, a bold revolutionary one, is if you're at the end of a, a sea change into, or at the end of a, a long trend in interest rates, interest rates coming down, bond prices going up, stock prices going up, property prices going up, and that trend reverses, whatever is ahead, you cannot bank on it being like the last 40 years. Yeah, precisely. And uh, unfortunately, there's still a lot of complacency. Uh, um, people still adopting 60-40 uh, type portfolios. And what we saw, the 70s is, is quite instructive because there we saw positive bond stock correlation. Uh, and obviously, commodities were the place to be. Mm. But back in the 70s, debt to GDP was was quite a manageable level. And uh, uh, real estate prices relative to incomes was also uh, quite accommodative. And, and that's not the case now. So do you think the 70s is a fair comparison for, say, the commodities market this time around? I think it's very useful. I mean, we, we saw gold back then uh, rise up to $200 and they started to raise rates and it immediately fell 50%, more or less. Uh, it bottomed around 100 and four years later, it's trading at 800. Mm. So um, the, the system doesn't work in your eyes and there will be a regime change of some kind. Um, if you were in charge now, what would you do? <laughs> Retire. <laughs> I mean, you you, you you wouldn't start from here is the old joke about getting directions, um, you know, because well, obviously the system's in a mess and that's you know not your making. But what, what could you do to fix it? Yeah, I, I think there's some little things. Uh, it's one of the areas I wanted to cover. Uh, little things I see in Switzerland about changes in attitude and, uh, and choosing responsibility over rights uh, which helped to rebuild. I, I don't think I, I, we're beyond uh, trying to stop. Uh, we have to pay the piper. But I think on the other side, there's a lot of uh, good things to look forward to. Um, if I will, I mean, I, I share some of the examples uh, since living here in Switzerland. Uh, they have user pay systems like the uh, garbage bags you pay for. Uh, so is you, that politicians or are you, are you really talking <laughs> no, about garbage bags? We're really talking about uh, plastic garbage bags issued by the, the local government here. You, you pay for a, a 35 litre a lot more than you pay for a 15. So what, what's that mean? It, it means uh, big families of four 
contribute more to the rubbish removal than a pensioner who only needs a 15-litre bag. So this has implications. People change their way of living. Uh, they, they adjust and um, they don't rely completely on government. I think this is where the direction I'm heading. Uh, if you've ever driven in Switzerland, uh, say you're going to Italy, you, you have to buy a vignette. It's a, it's a simple sticker. Uh, that allows you to use uh, the freeways. Mm. So if, if you live here, that's a small expense. If you're driving through, it's quite an irritation. Um, uh, another example is is the Swiss health insurance. Um, it's a government mandate, but it's operated by private companies. So I pay about a thousand francs a month for health insurance, and I have a 500 excess. So if I go to the doctor, I have to pay for it myself. Maybe I've got a sore throat or a runny nose. Uh, it cost me 70, 100, 120 francs, and I have to pay for it. Uh, but if I get cancer, then the private health insurance kicks in, and I've got one of the best health insurance systems in the world. So the consequences of these sort of things mean that uh, – you don't have a queue to see the doctor. People don't go uh, unless they genuinely have a problem. Uh, little Johnny doesn't go with a runny nose and get uh, get treated. So uh, people know my name when I go to my doctor. Uh, that's a new experience having lived 16 years in the UK. Um, there are some downsides to it too. The, that system gets uh, exploited. Uh, older people tend to have far more operations than they otherwise would. But again, this is this is skin in the game uh, approach, which I think coming out of whatever regime change we go through, this this is this is the way forward. This is less reliant on government intervention. It's less centralized, uh, and it, it impresses people to be responsible. One of the the factors you've cited in the, the sort of the, the pre preparation for this interviews, uh, localization effects and something called Gaminder. What, what, what yes. is that all about? Yes. Yeah. I mean, most of my taxes goes to the local government here. That's the Gaminder. I live in, in, in Zurich speaking Switzerland. So uh, uh, it, it's a it's conservative part of the world. Mm. Uh, but when most of your taxes go to a local government, you, you bump into the politicians in the supermarket. So they're not going to do crazy things because uh, they know their constituents are right beside them. Mm. Converse that with the federal government, where I pay about 7.5% uh, contribution. Um, and, and then there's also contribution to the state. So the, the, the system here uh, is, has state, local and federal governments all responsible for budgets. And if the local bud, uh, local government runs a deficit one year, they have to make it back the next. Uh, so you know that that changes uh, people's um, way of uh, operating uh, for the better. Are, are the politicians or the local ones? Are they well paid, or they do they have to have other businesses? Yeah, they're not not particularly well paid, no. Uh, but there 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 comes uh, obviously some credibility with running office. Um, but no, they're not they're not particularly well paid. But the whole element of actually meeting the people who are spending your money means that they're kept honest by what they do, and and clearly someone with local knowledge can deal with local problems in a much more efficient manner. 
Yes, absolutely. And a uh, you know, funny thing with localization, if you meet a, a Zurich banker, she may uh, travel back to her village an hour away to get a haircut because, uh, you know, that's that's the way they always have done it. So there, there is that tie to the local village that's uh, that's quite nice. And uh, there's still elements of that, I believe, in, in across Great Britain. Uh, I mean, imagine, say, the Oxford uh, City Council, instead of trying to cordon people into 15-minute cities, they, they try the, the, the garbage bags and, and people start to become more responsible for, for their uh, interaction with the state. Uh, that can change perception. I mean, it's not uncommon here to see an old person pick up some rubbish off the street and put it in the bin themselves. Uh, it only takes 10% of people to start doing that, and the other 90 will take notice and uh, and not be so lax in their behaviours. So you mentioned the haircut. I've got a thought experiment for you. This is something, okay. a little story someone told me recently. So a guy goes goes into a village um, to get a haircut, and as someone tells him, there's, there's two barbers in the village. One of them is wildly dishevelled. His hair's all over the place. And the other is his hair looks immaculate. Which which barber does he choose? <laughs> I, I think I can guess. Uh, well, it depends on your personality. We've got to allow for different people. Well, which well, you, barber would uh, you, you choose? You, uh, you'd go for the one whose hair who's disheveled because he's cutting the hair of the guy who's got a good hair. Exactly. Ah, oh, Paul, you've heard it before. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly on. <laughs> um, so, so what what are the downsides? I think I'm not sure you you, you mentioned some the aging population may lean heavily on the uh, healthcare system, um, but what what are the other downsides? Yeah, there's no perfect system. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're churning um, people through treatments they don't need as much. Uh, other downsides. Um, I can't. I mean, people here are, are very rule-abiding. Uh, you, you know the difference with the English common law and the continent. So uh, people won't be afraid to tell you off if you do something wrong. I mean, that is one of the problems with Switzerland. Uh, do you have to wait before you cross the roads like they do in some European countries? You know, even though the yeah. the light might be, there's no traffic but the little man says red or woman or whatever yeah. says red and you can't cross the road. But You, you, you get... might get frowned, upon, frowned at for, for doing that. But uh... Right. We find that very strange in this country, that, that and you probably know that from having lived here, that yes. pe people cross the road when it's clear because obviously we're, we, <laughs> that's what you do. But if a little, little light tells you you can't, even though it's clear, it seems so, yeah. so strange. Yeah, and, and it's funny that the, the British are so good at forming a queue, but then you you, you go skiing uh, in the Alps and every man for himself. Yeah, uh, but that's because the Europeans are every man for themselves. And if you don't get your pointy elbows out, you'll never get in there. But the, yeah, we don't. We we like queuing. Having driven through Europe just recently, I, I see exactly what you mean about the. You have to know that you've got to pay for all these. Um, tolls on on the motorways you've got to get these stickers in various countries it's all yeah. it's all very um it's, it's quite annoying actually to be honest but yeah that, that reminds me of the swiss train system because uh, you know I've, I've lived in london long enough and seen a few young people jump the the um, booths uh, uh, jump the restriction there 
in Switzerland, there is no uh, ticket collection uh, mechanism, uh, and you you can walk on and off a tram, really, uh, 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 and not be impeded by having to um, flick your ticket. But every so often, the tram will stop, and there'll be 30 ticket collectors. They'll come in every door. They'll check every ticket. Mm. And if you don't have one, it'll be a 100-franc fine. But they will also record your name so that if they catch you a second time, the fine goes up. It's right. really, it's really funny that you mentioned the the, the, the train ticket system because I was just thinking you you're talking about the crossing the road analogy, and I think this is in relation to Germany. And I don't know if this is a true story or not, but there's a, a there's, it's either a joke or it's a, a sort of tale that you know uh, during the war, uh, sort of German officer said to his sort of he said to his younger sort of a comrade, can you? I need you to put this this railway beyond use. So he trots off and comes back five minutes later and says, oh, yes, it's impossible for anyone to use it now. Says, I was expecting to hear like sort of rail rail infrastructure being blown up. He said, no, no, all I've taken the tickets out of the ticket machine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving swiftly on. Yes. Yeah, so um, is it so you, you, you've lived in Australia and you've lived in the UK and you're now in Switzerland. Is, is it, the, would you say, the best place for you? For me now, with a family yeah. uh, at 50-plus years old, absolutely. Uh, I mean, do, do one more thing about Switzerland, of course, is, is the direct democracy and all the voting. Uh, we vote like four times a year, but again, on issues for the three levels of government. And we have a important vote coming up, which is interesting, the uh, Swiss uh, Initiative for Neutrality. Uh, where they're gathering signatures now, and uh, I might just read it to you because it's it's uh, quite interesting. Uh, Switzerland may not join any military or defence alliance. Uh, the exception is cooperation with such alliances in the event of a direct military attack on Switzerland. Switzerland is prohibited from taking non-military coercive measures against warring states. It may lo no longer participate in sanctions and may not take measure any such measures. However, obligations to the UN remain possible. So this is a very interesting uh, point of uh, politics in the world uh, and what that's how Switzerland may be able to change uh, its status, returning to some uh, permanently uh, peaceful and independent uh, country. On a related note, what, how do you think the war in Ukraine is going to play out for the, the protagonists? If you have a view, if you don't have a view, that's fine. Yeah, well, I, I, I think uh, an underappreciated uh, aspect of this war is the motivation to try and stop um, commodities being priced in U.S. dollars. I mean, clearly the U.S. went to war with the, uh, Saddam because he planned to sell oil in euros. Uh, and this is a battle the U.S. is losing because... Uh, India is buying oil in rupiah, China is uh, buying oil in yuan, um, and even the Saudis now are selling it. So the idea that the petrodollar might come to an end uh, is, is people should take note. But the, the, the idea that sanctioning, not sanctioning Russia and also seizing their foreign reserves could assist the US now looks so crushingly you know, inappropriate. You, you do have to wonder about the the caliber of Biden's advisory team, don't you? Yes, yes. Uh, 
Um, sorry. Uh, I, I wasn't sure if you were going to expand on that or that that was just your response. Uh, I'm avoiding that topic. Okay, Fair fine. <laughs> so, so yes. Um, so I was going to ask about independence of the, SN, the Swiss National Bank, SNB. Um, with local politicians, obviously you see them, you can uh, remonstrate with them, but, but how does it work with, obviously we've seen what the SNB have done of printing a load of uh, euros, uh, sorry, printing a load of, of bonds and then um, losing a load of money. How, what, what is the, how, how are they kept in check? Or obviously they're not at the moment, but what, what's the mechanism yeah. there? Are they independent? Uh, I'm very glad you brought that up, Paul. Uh, firstly, uh, Switzerland built that uh, balance sheet up because they wanted to keep the franc cheap. They weren't financing deficits. Uh, they were printing Swiss francs to buy euro, sell those euro to buy US dollar assets mainly. And yeah, mm. they do own Tesla shares. And uh, uh, I think they were the 16th, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, biggest holder of US equities at one point. So yes, they are making big losses now. Uh, and normally they would distribute their profits to the cantons. Uh, but even, even with losses, they could still continue to distribute a certain amount of that balance sheet back to the people because, remember, they're not financing debt and deficits like Japan or the US. Uh, so um, that balance sheet uh, can still be distributed despite the losses. Uh, what it was there for was to keep the franc from getting too expensive and then making Switzerland uncompetitive. Right, I see. And... Um with your your interest in gold and obviously your interest in sound money do do cryptocurrencies appear in any of that picture yeah i i've done some work with crypto i've been involved a little in the mining um as i think i mentioned you know with with crypto a lot of the uh investor attention was from uh, staking and uh, offering a yield actually attracted a lot of investors so some of the the smaller projects in particular that, that a lot of that yield was generated from transaction fees uh, and when you're you're offering uh, the staking yields based on transaction fees it's great when the adoption curve is is going up and up and vertical but when it starts to taper off, uh, there's no more yield to distribute. And, and so the value of these things uh, imploded. Uh, I do think this is a, a place uh, for uh, Bitcoin. Uh, and, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm in favor of people having exposure to both. I think if you're if you're risk averse and elderly, you, you probably don't need any Bitcoin. But if you're young and have a limited balance sheet, then then absolutely uh, have an exposure to Bitcoin, but also gold. Don't have one or the other. Um, that reminds me a little bit. One of our uh, previous guests, a gentleman, Sir Stephen Wilkinson, and he he made a very interesting point when we last spoke to him, which is he was sort of excusing the investment behavior, if you like, of millennials or maybe millennials is the wrong word maybe it's gen z uh generation z um basically people have been born in the last sort of 20 25 years or so on the basis that he excused their sort of what would otherwise appear to be like a gadarene rush into crypto on the basis that this is a very disenfranchised um segment of society they have no assets they've no 
there's no likelihood of getting onto the property ladder anytime soon. And so the, the point Stephen made was that it's entirely reasonable for these people to sort of speculate in crypto because it's the only, the only possible market they can sort of catch a ride on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And in doing so, they're learning. By, by not participating, you don't learn as much. So mm. I agree with that. Yeah. So you, you pay no... Uh, capital gains tax on private investments, which seems incredible. Um, so there must be a restriction for people to 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 settle there. Was it was it difficult to actually move? Well, I'm lucky. Uh, my father's Swiss, so I had Swiss citizenship when I was born. So I had no restriction. But you, you're right. I mean, if you're a German entrepreneur and you made an exit. Uh, uh, you're moving to Switzerland before you start your next venture, clearly. I mean, when you have zero private uh, capital gains, uh, it allows you to build wealth. And that's that's very important. I mean, what is the purpose of savings, uh, Paul, Tim? Uh, why do we save? Uh, to support our government in all its endeavours. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you want to store up your purchasing power when you're uh, in your prime of your life so that you can draw it down again in, in your uh, elderly years. Uh, and that's very hard to do when, when governments are debasing money at such a rate. And I think that's the only way we, we, we have to adjust through this crisis is uh, devaluation of, of the monetary unit. Would you happen to know what the uh, requirements are to, to say, say somebody listening to this thinks this sounds... Amazing. I, I, can hear, I can hear Paul scribbling furiously <laughs> in the background. <laughs> um, in relation to moving to, to say where, where you are, what, 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 as a non, if you haven't got anyone who's a relative who's Swiss, how, how, could, how could one actually settle there? And on behalf of Paul, how, just how much does it cost? And, <laughs> and where, when, when can we apply? Yeah. Yeah, well, they, they, they do like do you know to be sure. Flight, do you know what the next flight to, the next flight to Geneva is? <laughs> well, they do like to be sure people can look uh, look after themselves before letting them in. But, uh, yeah, there there is uh, restrictions, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think with, with is Monaco, you've got to have something like um, a million dollars of assets or something before they'll even consider. And that's obvious yeah. um, as to why they do that. But... I was, I was guessing it was something I mean, like... Would you really honestly want to live in Monaco, Paul? Just no, 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 I'm just... Oh, no, 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 not at all. No, no, I, no I, I'm just ra ra raising the question. I'm just I'm no. confused as to why anybody would elect to live there versus, say, Switzerland. Well, I, I, yes, absolutely. And I think it, it's um, it's an important point to make that if you... Look, if you're, if you're single and um, you're very wealthy and you want that sort of lifestyle, then, yeah, great. But if you've got a family and... Um, uh, it, it, it depends what you want, really. I mean, so the Swiss lifestyle seems far more akin to something more reasonable. Um, but you guys are responsible to make Britain uh, put it back on the map. I mean, this was a great trading nation. Uh, and, and look, I mean, it's just a consequence of QE that governments got too big. Uh, we've got to rein them in. Uh, the spirit of the British people... Uh, uh, should be let out again. You know, yeah. once, you, once you get the yoke of big government off your back, uh, things can happen. The problem is, it's, the, it's really the central bank and the control of money and the fact that it's, it's being debased. And it's almost like they're on this, this, um, this roller coaster and they can't stop it. It's like, it's just, how does one do That's why I, I like to ask the question, what would you actually do? Because 
it seems such an intractable problem that gets inherited from government to government in terms of government policy, but also the central bank just sits there obviously being influenced by the government, even though they're supposed to be independent in this country. And they just say, okay, look, there's, there's a problem. Let's lower interest rates. Uh, we need money. The government says, print some. And that, that seems to be the only answer to anything. Well, I think the world is bifurcating. Uh, one half wants nothing to do with China. The other half wants nothing to do with the US. And in a way, uh, Britain uh, and Switzerland are, are subordinated to the US through through the US dollar swap lines. Uh, I mean, think of Japan. Japan has a, a, a terrible debt and demographic problem. Um, but in order for them to buy oil, they have to print yen, buy dollars, and sell those dollars to buy oil. What if Japan went directly uh, to Russia and said, look, here, take our yen for oil, uh, and then you can turn that yen back uh, and buy Sony TVs and, and Toyotas? I mean, the U.S. would go crazy. Hmm. Uh, you, you might see the result uh, that the Fed prints money to buy JGBs to stop that happening. Uh, it can't go on forever. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Japan. Do you have any views about Japan? I mean, I think we probably both feel that the, the, the bond situation is completely out of control. But that's 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 a, that's a debt uh, issue, not an equity one. Do you have any views about Japan as a, an equity um, investment? Uh, well, it certainly uh, represents value. Um, you could argue it's, it's it's been that for. I mean, I think one yeah. reason why so many people are so wary is because there've been so many false dawns in the Japanese economy and the Japanese stock market, and it's I think, think even now is still below its eighty nine peak. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I don't have a view of it, uh, on the equities, but I, I do have heard uh, the idea that maybe Japan would meet uh, and tear up their debt between the. Uh, the government entities. Uh, they, they hold it themselves. It's not like it's a huge investment for anybody else. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what would be the implication of that? Well, the, the yen would collapse. Uh, but then Japanese industry would be so much more competitive. Uh, yeah. You wouldn't buy Samsung, you'd buy Sony. Uh, uh, and then South Korea would turn around and do exactly the same thing. And so, you know, that's what happens when governments default. It's not uh, an isolated event. You tend to get... Uh, multiple um, credit issues at once. But I think, I mean, for me, partly because I started my career working for the Japanese, working for Japanese banks in London, uh, the, the example of Japan has always been sort of the, the spectre at the feast. Yes. Um, do you think that there are lessons for other Western markets in just how, just how appallingly bad the Japanese asset you know financial market position has been in the you know the the years since their their mar their property market peaked and then exploded in the late 80s because they've been in some form of de deflation or at least soggy subpar growth ever since yeah and yeah. i'm i'm sort of looking at sort of things markets like nasdaq and the s&p 500 and thinking you know there have been periods in in stock market history before when i'm thinking specifically i think 1929 the U.S. market, after it peaked, then did not regain those highs until 1954. So, yeah. given that we're now looking at a sort of change in the interest rate cycle and potentially, well, certainly a sort of a blow-off top in in some of the Nasdaq stocks, that I'm not sure the average investor is braced or mentally prepared for years of sort of sideways war of attrition type stuff. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, we're dealing with a much bigger uh, problem than, than than the 08 crisis or, or what we've seen before. This is a much higher degree problem. Uh, and yeah, the, the NASDAQ is full of unprofitable companies uh, that uh, sold growth stories uh, um, and that's that's not a good place to put your capital. I mean, I think, again, we've seen a lot of uh, um, cost cutting, uh, and so that should lead to some sort of reflective bounce, and maybe we're seeing it now, maybe that carries through for the rest of the quarter. Uh, but these higher interest rates are going to rein in spending, uh, and so the, the growth space is, is not where you want to be. Credit credit to Elon Musk for starting this process because you got you get the feeling that everyone in big tech was waiting for him to make the first move and sack half of Twitter. Yeah, well, and they've all sort of shuffled in sheepishly behind him and started making their own layoffs in response. You normally ask a question. I think uh, is it cockup or conspiracy? Exactly, exactly. Well, it's pretty hard to have a view that uh, it's a cockup after uh, uh, seeing the release of the Twitter files. Yeah, yeah. So a subject that we've discussed at length on this show and we think is obviously vitally important is is the education system. What's the education system like in, in Switzerland? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Paul. I mean, it, it does uh, follow uh, that the responsibility is encouraged. So my, my daughter at five years old and both my kids, they walk to school themselves. Uh, we, we live in a functioning village, so they walk 200 meters, they cross the road. The police teach them how to cross the road at a very early age. They learn to use a pocket knife at five years old. Um, so they'll oh, handle themselves if they ever end up in prison. Then. A pocket knife? Are you, are you, <laughs> yeah. are you serious? What, one of those Swiss army knives? Or? Correct, yes. No, a five? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, and maybe they injure themselves, but then they'll learn. Um, that that creates a sense of responsibility. Wow. But at five, I mean... Yep. Yeah, and they go into the woods together, uh, and uh, they're quite free. Um, it, it's, it's, it's great. It's localized. And that, that, that education, they learn Switzerdeutsch uh, at a young age, and, and now it's they, German. They need a pocket knife, Paul, because you can't always get your hands on a Glock. <laughs> <laughs> when do they get a Glock? Eighteen. Well, we still have military service, of course, so uh, they have to spend their their time in the army. Um, a few find other other civil duties uh, and opt out, but uh, there is still a military service. And, and we talked about the um, the capital gains tax free, but there is a wealth tax too, and. Uh, um, that's not something I would want to give Anglo-Saxon governments uh, control over. So we do report uh, our assets um, and we have a very small tax uh, on our net worth. But I'm, I'm both shocked and impressed at the same time. And, and so do they teach financials, uh, you know, independence and, and uh, the proper things that should be taught in school that aren't in, in well, certainly in the UK yeah. and the US? No, well, no, it's not that far. There is right. there. What wokeism is is encroaching is uh, into Switzerland too? Yes. Oh no. Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah, it is. But uh, these things can be reversed. Uh, yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I'm, I'm. I'd like to ask a few more questions about um, your your actual business because I, I must yep. admit, um, it's probably just me, but I'm trying to get my head round. 
how this came about and and how it actually works is it something that say individuals or corporations can invest in with you who have nothing to do with the the gold market yeah the the the, the product is a, a luxembourg securitization so we were issuing bonds for professional or qualified investors so you know i have investors with a hundred thousand or, or more uh, to put to work uh, and so it's a listed bond uh, and uh we're just in the final throes of, of uh, getting sixth exchange uh, to denominate a security in XAU, XAU being the, the currency code for an ounce of gold. Yeah. Um, and so then it's quite simple uh, because the, the, the return is struck uh, when the deal is done, i.e. The, the discount you get uh, in XAU, and that's passed on as a, as a capital gain. So we issue a zero coupon bond. Uh, and uh, we monitor, obviously, the credit risk, uh, um, and we we take uh, a share pledge on all the plant and equipment, and that's uh, over collateralizing the bond by at least two times. Uh, and we're we're cautious with uh, how much of production uh, is is being lent, uh, and, uh, and so there there are some credit metrics we apply. But really, to get um, we're looking at a, a low double-digit return uh, in gold, uh, and that's uh, that's exceptional. Uh, and you should ask, well, why? Why why are the returns so high? Uh, like uh, British governments, uh, local councils should have asked, why was the Bank of uh, Iceland? Uh, mm. providing eight, 8% interest. <laughs> yeah, well, it's ha happened before. Bank, that, yeah, there's so many banks that were offering uh, in previous crises, not the one, not the 08 one, but there was a, what, I can't remember yeah. the name of the bank now, but it was offering... BCCI? BCCI, that's it, yes. Yeah. It was, yes, 15% when everyone else was offering eight or whatever. And it's like, well, there's a reason. Yeah. Yeah, so the reason, I mean, we're, we're able to deliver such returns is because it's such a capital-starved sector. It's been deleveraging. Uh, it's been in a bear market. Uh, I think um, David Murren, if I'm correct, was was uh, explaining how, how undervalued a lot of these mining companies are relative to the metal. Uh, and so they're starved of capital. Uh, and, uh, I, I, of course, I went to visit the mine and inspect all the equipment. And uh, I was amazed that everywhere there were opportunities to spend money uh, with payback periods inside of six months. So um, these, the, their opportunity to, to generate uh, very good risk-adjusted returns is there because it's a, it's a beaten-up sector. Why can't they go to the bank and just borrow the money for the equipment and then pay it back yeah. that way? Certainly big, big miners can. I mean, banks don't want to lend less than $100 million. Uh, but the smaller and intermediate miners, uh, they're typically funding themselves by issuing more equity, which which might help explain why uh, gold mining equities have, have not performed like you would expect. Uh, and, and of course, the royalty business is wonderful if you're invested in royalties. But if you're if you're invested in mining companies, it's terrible because it takes away a lot of the upside. So do you think all this will will change so that with the rise, the current rise in gold and broadly in base metals and certain other pre precious metals, silver, etc., 
Um, do you, is this sector set? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but w- mm. would you say there's a boom coming, or or do you think it would just outperform or hum along nicely? No, I expect a, a major outperformance uh, of commodities, uh, and as I suggested before, it's it's going to be volatile. Uh, many uh, UK pensions learned the hard way allocating to commodities back in 08 when they were buying uh, commo- uh, commodity futures. And of course, they had a very expensive roll- rolling cost, something like 12, 15% at the time that they were paying away. Um, that's because they wanted liquidity. But uh, gold as a proxy for the commodity space uh, is very um, useful. I mean, its purchasing power relative to other commodities goes up over time. And oil priced in gold is much less volatile than oil priced in in dollars. So uh, I think gold is a a good proxy. Uh, And uh, as I say, even though it's going to be volatile, um, it's going to be the right right place to have a, a meaningful allocation. What are the metrics that you would use before you go to visit a a miner? How, how do you analyze the potential opportunity? Yeah, so we, you know we're lending uh, between one and three years, so you need to be sure they've got a proven resource that's going to be um, more than that time. Uh, you want to know that they have access to the site uh, year-round uh, and uh, and a supply of diesel and electricity. Uh, you want to have good management teams that have done it all before and uh, and are invested in the equity of the company. Uh, and, and you want to be sure that the, the plant and equipment they're using uh, 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 is has spare capacity and, and is well managed. Because what happens in the mining sector uh, in, in a lot of places is that um, people run them into the ground. They just try uh, uh, and strip mine the opportunity and they don't reinvest and they don't uh, explore uh, and um, that's that's not uh, the, the people you want to work with. But uh, there are opportunities, of course, but for good management teams to pick up assets that are accretive. And so we, we, we always look to work with, with the good management teams, of course. But, but importantly, after a 10-year bear market, they are all very disciplined with capital. My um, my sort of imagination of how these uh, mining companies works is that that they sort of plan to to sort of explore an area and they have a, a sense of whether it's going to yield uh, what they're looking for, and then once they start drilling, digging, uh, or whatever, they they find out whether it's it's rich or or, or not. So there's a lot of risk involved of course especially yeah. at the early stages but then it's a question of well what's whatever's there's there they can't do that much about it but what you're saying is very interesting because you're saying actually they should go beyond that that thought process and say okay perhaps maybe this isn't yielding as much as we thought but that we we should reinvest because there may be something in this area where we can develop further as opposed to just taking what they've got there and and um and then not investing in anything at all and just trying to get the most out of that. 
Yeah, it depends on the the geology, of course. Uh, certain regions um, have been mined for hundreds of years, uh, and so you you may only prove a certain year's number of production, and and throughout the process of mining, then you you, you continue to drill for more. And these sort of companies are very suited to our form of uh, of financing. Um, whereas when you have a very defined resource. Uh, then it's better just to, to to take a royalty and and exploit it and and then move on. But um, we like long uh, mine life projects. We, we we want to have partnerships with people. Um, and what about geography? Where where do you tend to go? I mean, would you go to sort of Australia and um, and would you go to Africa? Any African countries? Uh, not at this stage, you know. I, I like South America, parts of America. Um, if I look at um, projects in in the U.S., for example, uh, a bit more cautious there. I mean, they have uh, Chapter Eleven, which uh, means that uh, management's sometimes not as disciplined with capital. Uh, if if they if they didn't have that uh, escape uh, card. Mm. So I, I do like more emerging markets because I think that it's a good time to allocate to emerging markets. And uh, I, I like uh, when there's a plentiful supply of labor. And that's not the case in Australia or, or, or even in Canada. So um, that's that's more attractive to me. Tim, how, how yeah. widely do you, do you cast the net when you're looking for these gold mining companies? So if, if we look at the composition of our portfolios for, for miners, then we're, we're in Australia, we're in North America and Canada. We've got pockets of Africa. We've got pockets of Latin America. I suppose the biggest risk we're concerned about is basically the the credibility of the uh, the administration, so the government regime. How likely is it that there's a there's a risk of sequestration of assets? Yep. So, uh, but I, I respect everything that Heinz just said in terms of you know things like the labour force, labour shortages, and you know other stuff. So, I mean, I think particularly in the context of the investment world as as it is in 2023, I'd reiterate the advice we'd make to investors in every other area, which is you just can't be too diversified. Yeah. And 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 why not diversify your precious metals exposure across uh, physical metal, uh, gold bonds, and equities? Because then you can stomach uh, more volatility. Sure. And and so if um, let's say someone listening to this is an American investor has two hundred thousand equivalent of uh, of funds to invest, and they they're looking to invest in your project. Um, how, how would they go about doing that? Would they go through an intermediary and buy this new bond that you're creating or would they go directly to you? How, how does it work? Yeah, they can come directly to me and uh, we can do the suitability and appropriateness checks. Uh, you can go to my website. Uh, it's uh, auricalternatives.com and, uh, and someone can look after them. Right. So there's, so there's a number of routes. The most direct one is probably the best. Would that be? <laughs> would that be fair to say? Certainly, but yeah, yeah. Or, or through their wealth manager, they should be able to find it too. And and how? So how many years has, has this been going? How long has this been running for? Uh, just just launching now. So right. This is our, our first. And so, so you're part of a team. I'm actually just in, in front of the website, and um, mm -hmm. which is uh, which gives a lot of information. Yeah. Um, 
was this something that you drove your you're you're the fa- so you're the founder and then you put the team together or was this an yeah. idea that someone else came up with and you 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 headed it yeah i mean uh, i had uh, some help with a friend called danny oliver um, american capital uh, we'll talk about him later he's uh, he's a very smart uh, author uh, and uh, I obviously w- was following what Keith Weiner was doing, but no, I drove this uh, here in Europe uh, with an engineering background, banking background, asset management. Uh, I feel like a pig in mud. The areas where I had weakness uh, is obviously uh, metals trading. So I'm lucky enough to have uh, the chairman of the advisory board who worked for Glencore for 18 years. And uh, he, he's a fascinating and very helpful individual. So he, he provides guidance um, where I'm lacking. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, please please speak about your, the, the sorry, the, the cover of his name, the, the author that you mentioned. Um, yeah, what, what, what was his role? Yeah, I, he, he suggested that um, there was a, a gap in the market for something like this. And, and he is an equity investor in junior mining companies. So uh, you, you you have your incentives uh, for them to borrow in, in what they produce because that, that uh, leaves more juice for the equity. Uh, but he's a very smart guy, and actually, uh, I wanted to mention him in 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 media picks. Ah, okay, okay. Well, we can we can. I see why you wanted to come come back to him. <laughs> just just before I, I sense that that's where we're getting to. Is is that right, Tim? Have you got? Yeah, him? yeah by all yeah, means. By yeah. All um, just before we go to media picks, then I just wanted to ask about broader investments. Um, so, in terms of balancing a portfolio or um, having other investments um obviously you don't want all your eggs in one basket where would you where do you look at the moment where do you do, where do you think there's yeah. value out there yeah i like uh, uh commodity investing of course um uh, I, I always i've been a fan of mark faber for many years and he talks about the permanent portfolio you know 25 percent bonds and cash 25 percent real estate 25 percent equity and 25 percent precious metals uh, and that's a portfolio that can really withstand any sort of market environment. Uh, I mean, last year, I was uh, in a lot of um, energy stocks, um, product tankers, fertilizers, uh, uranium. I, I love uranium. I think that's a matter of if and not when. Um, and and still keeping uh, some cash on the sidelines because, uh, as I say, we think we're going to have a more volatile environment and uh, having that optionality is, is still useful. Uranium hasn't gone up as much as I thought it would, given no. given the world uh, demand for, for, for energy and the supposed, well, for whatever reason. But I, I, th- I think, it, I don't know what you think about this, but personally... There's no other answer than nuclear. It just has to be. It's just a question when people come round to it, and and therefore it, it's uh, it, it has, in my view, much further to go. Yeah, I agree. And then again, uranium miners suffered a bit, uh, like the gold miners, in that when they need to raise uh, cash, uh, they have to issue equity or, or do private placements because no banks want to be seen as lending to uh, to smaller, certainly medium-sized uranium miners. Tim, what what do you think of nuclear and, and uranium? Do you have any? I think it was you that mentioned it in the first place. Actually, quite, 
quite a few I years think, ago. I think I think you're right. I think the 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 investor base looking at say the energy world and the the green world is I think currently in the first it's the first stage of the sort of Kubler-Ross stages of grief, which is they're still in denial. They mm. refuse to accept that the the green the green mission is basically impossible. That it, it's a myth rather than a reality. So, like like you, I think you know, uranium is a in the fullness of time is a sort of must own um, exposure. Do you, Do you have any? Are you able to say whether you have any exposure? No, we to... we we have very little or none at the moment. But that's only on valuation grounds. So we haven't found anything cheap enough. But uh, ideally, we we will find something in the fullness of time that meets our requirement. We have very stringent requirements, so because in addition to needing meaningful cash flow from from companies we also need basically little or no debt so getting the combination of of both of those characteristics in every sector is very very difficult yeah absolutely so um that takes us nicely on to to media pick so Heine, what what if you you've got a shopping list there i think yeah i've got a few i've got a few um, okay. you got a spare couple of days paul yeah <laughs> let's let's sit back relax and and uh hear these then well, the first one I haven't actually seen yet, but it's a BBC TV series that's going to be aired this year. Okay, Connie, it's been great having you on. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a point to this, Tim. You'll, you'll, you'll appreciate it. It's called The Gold, uh, and it's been inspired by um, the big uh, robbery back in 1983. Uh, and I love uh, TV that reminisces of the 80s because it's when is I was young. Brink, is that Brinks Matt? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, you, you can trust the mainstream media to want to associate gold with criminality, uh, cash and <laughs> gold. I mean, they, they, you know, they don't want to give you a valid exit. So um, they're, they're on the job trying to make uh, decredit gold. Um, yeah, and come on, on the investment side, I had a few ideas I thought I'd share because obviously State of the Markets podcast is clearly a, a go-to uh, a free um, media, but uh, another one that's free is uh, is Mamurkan Capital, and uh, that's Dan Dan Oliver. He he writes some brilliant papers with historical references, and it's all available on his website. Uh, that's Mamurkan M Y R M I K A N dot com. Right. Uh, I want to shout out also to Grant Williams. I think his, his copper tier is uh, 10 bucks a month. It's also great uh, for people wanting to get under the hood in finance uh, without it getting too technical. Um, uh, Mark Faber's uh, newsletter I've also liked. He's very philosophical and uh, a very smart man. And, it is uh, pronounced Mark Faber. <laughs> Yes, yeah, uh, and another guest you've had on on the podcast, uh, Chris McIntosh. I mean, that's where I, I, I spend the big bucks to get his newsletter, and uh, I really like their approach. Um, I got a lot of my stock ideas through them. Uh, again, they sort of they're not the most sophisticated investor, but they they invest in lots of smaller, deep value uh, names, uh, and they kind of set traps to get lucky. Uh, and last year, uh, with those ideas, uh, I, I did very well. So um, a shout out to them. Uh, on books, uh, there's uh, Jens O'Parsons. I don't know if you've heard dying of this of, one. Dying of money. Correct, yes. It's available uh, online. You can get the PDF. Uh, that's also a great book talking about inflation. It, gets so quite it changes technical. hands at eye-watering levels on Amazon. Uh, very good. I've got very a copy good. of it. 
um, but I don't know where, actually right in front of me, but I don't know who printed it, whether it was a, um, I'll, I'll have a look actually while, while, while you speak. Sorry. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. it may be out of print though, but it, it's, it's a terrific read. Terrific read. Yeah. Uh, and Skin in the Game by Nassim Taleb, coming back to what we were discussing about Switzerland, I think that's quite instructive uh, on how to read people and situations. Uh, yeah, uh, and, I really and finally, finally, in movies, uh, uh, just as two movies, uh, I know it's been mentioned oh, before. Oh, only two, okay. Only two. <laughs> Roll Over, Roll Over in 1981 with Jane Fonda and Chris Christopherson, oh, I think, was, was a great one. Tim beat you to that. Um, but yes, yeah. Yeah. what worth it has the most shattering final sequence imaginable, really. Yeah. Very, very powerful stuff. Yes. Worth reiterating. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then the final one uh, is uh, Avatar. I watched with the kids recently. Uh, Avatar 2. No, they're just the first the one. Uh, I haven't seen the second yet, no. Uh, and why I bring it up, I mean, there was a key scene uh, when Ava, uh, the, the, the mother nature, was losing uh, the battle and they were being overrun and um, the, the the planet sort of uh, reacted and everyone started to fight all the animals all the birds it was like a, a single consciousness where um, people warred against the invaders uh, and they triumphed and I bring that up because of the the dangers of CBDCs I think uh, uh, clearly, your prime minister has some uh, connections in that industry, and uh, if we're going to stand and unite for humanity, it has to be against these digital IDs uh, and central bank digital currencies. Because if if people are receiving UBI and programmable money, I mean that's just abominable. That's uh, that's the worst of outcomes, uh, and I never want to see it for my children. So I hope uh, all of humanity will will fight against that idea because it's abominable. The idea of the the planet responding is is like um, it's akin to the James Lovelock's Gaia principle, which is that the Earth is a self regulating mechanism that if anything it identifies anything as a threat, it ultimately takes it out. Brilliant, Tim. Yes, yes, love it, love that. Amazing. So, um, the 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 Avatar film, the first one, I found is I enjoyed it when it first came out and saw it in the cinema in 3D. And it's a bit like the uh, film Gravity. I don't know if you've seen that, but that is a that's a movie you see in the cinema in 3D. But it didn't work quite as well in 2D. Uh, it was still a good film, but it just, it was part of the experience was actually the, the, the amazing 3D world that you, you get brought into. Um, did you watch it in 3D or, or did you watch it in 2D? No, it was 2D with my, my children. I mean, James Cameron's amazing uh, producer and yes. uh, he takes you on a journey and uh, we watched it as a matinee because my nine-year-old daughter went through all the full cycle of emotions. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's, um, it, it is a great film, but I just remember yeah. it being absolutely amazing in 3D and I wanted my... I watched it with my daughter recently um, in 2D and I was like, this is pretty good, but it would have been better in 3. So... Um, yeah. So Tim, do you, do you have any any um, media picks, or or do you think I, we should I, leave that list to? to for no, the... I'm I'm happy to respect Heine's list. I'm just going to. People will assume that we've con, we've conspired before, which I, I swear is not the case. I'm going to have just one this week, and it's um, an interview with Clive Thompson, formerly of uh, UBP, retired director of UBP in Switzerland, 
and it's it's it was titled Central Bank Debt Crisis to Usher in CBDCs? Question oh. mark. Um, so it's Clive Thompson is basically a, a financier of some of some experience, and he's interviewed by um, WT Finance, so a sort of rival rival financial podcast. And it's about a, just under an hour long, but it's um, in, in very sort of matter of fact terms. He talks about the implications, the ramifications of CBDCs. Um, it's not overly alarmist, not not as alarmist as I think it should be, and as as Heine, I think right rightfully alludes. But either way, for anyone that's looking for the implications of this stuff, um, it's a great interview in terms of the practicalities of what to hold and what not to hold in the event that they do try and unleash this horror on the world. Yeah. I, I do think you, you could have uh, uh, transactions between governments as a way of settling trade, but uh, for a government to issue them to its own people, that is, that is no. It's it's a level of monstr- monstrosity because it's it's the whole risk of something that's a programmable currency that can be switched off, that can determine what you'll buy, track, you know, be a be a basically a personal surveillance device that that can sort of choose whether whether or not to accept your your payments. Um, all of these things are just, just, just disgusting, and, yeah, just, and it's not, not allowed. A, it's not a conspiracy. I mean, Carson's has stated it very clearly. Uh, the head of the BIS, uh, Tower of Basel, he's made it very clear, uh, as I believe, uh, as your prime minister. My my hope is that that if they do attempt to create it, people just reject it and turn to something else. So they would just say, mm. actually, no, and then it becomes ineffectual a bit like when they in the uk when they try to bring in the poll tax and and it mm. just it just caused people just to say we're not paying it and it clogged up the system the legal system and then then there were the rights and then the government dropped it but um well at the risk at the risk of crowbarring yet another film reference in then <laughs> jurassic park it's you know nature finds a way so if people yes. really don't want this to happen there, there will be a way out one hopes yes i i yeah. yes I, I really hope so i think that's a nice way of putting it um, just just one one final question, uh, which was sort of going to be my media pick, but I haven't finished reading it. Have you read the Zurich Axioms? No, no, I haven't. Okay, it's uh, it was a recommendation from someone on the pod who I can't remember who it was. I was trying to find it while we were on air, and and uh, it may have been Akil Patel, um, but it's a I can't I can't quite remember. But anyway, it's a really it's a really good little book. Um, fantastic so far, but I haven't read it all, so I can't can't comment completely. But it's uh, given your location, I, th- I thought uh, you you may have already read it. But it's um, yeah, some this the first part of it is is very interesting. So it's talking about risk, and it's, it's saying that um, in order to you know we get taught, for example, in a, a, a or, or or there's this um, this idea that in order to make money you just got to put it in the bank and leave it there and 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 that's it but actually the zurich axioms are you need to take risk there's a certain amount of yeah. risk that you need to take and and it's worth taking and that's it's yeah. completely against a lot of the thinking so I, I really like that first part of it but as i say i haven't finished it yet so yeah, no, it's very true, and then possibly that's the only place where mud sticks. If you throw it at a gold bug, uh, they're taking their capital out of the system uh, and not circulating it. And then what we're doing is is trying to bring that capital cautiously uh, back into where it's going to be treated well to to generate a return. Absolutely. And um, on that note, 
please let us know where people can find you. I know you mentioned the website, but please mention that again and sure. any Twitter handles or, or socials. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not good at social media. I have a Twitter handle, but it's it's a it's a closed, it's a locked account. So the the website's really the best place to get me. That's uh, Auric, as in Auric Goldfinger, A U R I C Alternatives dot com. Auric Alternatives dot com. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you, Heine. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been, been an pleasure, absolute pleasure. Paul. It's been really fun, really interesting, and we look forward to having you back. And best of luck with your project. Thank you very much, Paul, Tim. Pleasure. Thanks, Sonny. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.